been told to come in lap after lap after lap. And what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it. Stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George. Try and straight line it. Get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton. Oh! Who knows? Never goes straight on. This is kind of appalling. This is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. What? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unqualified. G is back. Graham is back. We've got a little bit more red, white, and blue painted on the F1 calendar. I don't know about you, Gerald, but it feels pretty good to me. The pomp and circumstance of a, of a very uh, well-managed U.S. Grand Prix uh, was very real. What was your take? Maybe we start there just on the overall production of the race. I know both championships are over now, so some people are kind of ready to go to sleep on F1, but I thought it was an invigorating weekend for a lot of reasons. What say you? Yeah, it might just be an excess of patriotism, but I had to, I think this was probably one of the best race weekends uh, of the year. I think you got a little bit of everything early in practice. You got some tire testing. You got young drivers in FP1. And then the race overall, first off, because of a lot of like grid penalties after qualifying, but then just some fascinating like roller coaster races for a lot of drivers up and down the grid. And so I thought it was, it was eventful start to finish and exactly what a, a Grand Prix should be. And at least from uh, reports that I had seen, the experience on the ground was equally as favorable and efficient. Um, so, you know, America, once again, doing things right. <laughs> um, do you think that Coda as a track layout gets enough credit? for the quality of racing that it produces? I mean, I don't ever, I don't ever hear it noted as like one of the best tracks, but I do think just based on the relative performance of Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, as we've talked about, like three teams across the spectrum of philosophies, they each had, you know, solid weekends. And I think that goes to the mix of the track. I think you also, even though there were some like pretty, there was incidents that stopped the race, there was a lot more instances of cars going off the track where it didn't disrupt the race. And so I think you were able to have Latifi spin and others spin where they were able to continue to proceed because of the amount of runoff. So I think, I don't know if that's an Austin thing or just a traditional track thing, but I think those things together, I mean, made for a, a pretty rewarding race weekend. It also just looks like fun to drive because of the mix, because of some of the elevation change. Because of the width of the track, you can do some interesting things on corner entry, like at turn one. Um, so yeah, man, I think it's a solid race all around. How about you? I love how at random points throughout the weekend, different, like mostly non-American broadcasters tried to kind of like shoehorn in the fact that the track is a little bit bumpy as like a way of saying like Americans don't know how to build shit. Um <laughs> you know, like there were seeds of that. Mo for the most part, I think, though, the track was described pretty favorably. The other thing, I so I agree with everything you just said. I think it is a bit underrated. I also think that the new car regulations were built for a track like Coda. I think we saw significantly better action as a result of cars being able to follow each other in high downforce corners like Sector 1. You know, and then actually be able to tell each other for the remainder of the lap so they had a shot when the home straight finally or the back straight finally came on. So um, this track for me exaggerated the benefit of the new cars and like really kind of brought that home even more. So 
kudos to kudos to the FIA. I think it's like the perfect marriage of the trajectory of the type of track you want to continue to add to the calendar, and then the way you want the cars to continue to develop. If 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 this is an indication of where both of those things are headed, then the sport's in good shape. And while people gave Miami shit during the weekend, I thought Miami was a really good race as well, a really interesting track. I think arguably, yes, there are some track changes they can make to further improve it, but for a first season out, I mean, no track is perfect. That being said, I don't expect Vegas to be the the same situation. I'm already pretty pessimistic on how that race will go based on the layout, but I also think in Austin, they did a lot of work to reduce some of the bumps as well. And so I didn't actually notice as much commentary and certainly not as much emphasis during the race practice, anything on like the bumps and how drivers are coming. I mean, you certainly didn't see a car's suspension fracture mid-race. So I think they made some decent improvements as well. So we might not get it right the first time, but eventually we, we get there. Did I want to ask you go back to one of your original points about because I actually forgotten until you just said that this happened to be also the weekend where all the young drivers were released into FP one just to kind of like see what the hell would happen. Uh, did anybody did anybody stand out in particular to you as like notable, good or bad based on their performance in FP one? Yeah, it, part of the thing that was interesting about it is they were all on different tire compounds, so you had Schwartzman. Oh yeah, the tire had- test. Yeah. Well, well then you had the tire, tire test in FP2, yeah. Yeah, so you had tire test FP2, which sort of made it really impossible to know what was what because, well, we'll get to that. But in terms of young drivers, you know, you had Schwartzman on soft, you had Palau on mediums, I think you had others on hards. I think Sergeant the one on that mediums. struck me was Palau came out right out of the gate on mediums and put up better times than any of those young drivers. I think one of his first laps was comparable to Norris's early lap. Now, Norris continued to progress, but similar to what you see with the likes of Max and Leclerc, that ability to come out lap one and like top the times and kind of nail a, a qualifying lap has to be a good measure for a, for a driver. I think Schwartzman had a chance to put in a really good lap late in the race, but he sort of got blocked by Verstappen. But that being said, it took him the entirety of the session to get there. And he was running on softs sitting behind Palau, you know, while Palau's in a McLaren and he's in a Ferrari. So I think, Look, he had a chance later. He was a little slower getting to speed, but I think just Palau came out of the gate and looked really, really good. So credit to him. And and again, I, I think it's another note of IndyCar having more of a of a future and connection with the sport. And and I don't know if you watched any of the F1 official broadcast, but throughout the entire weekend, they had James Hinchcliffe there, former um, IndyCar driver and now commentator, throughout the entirety of the weekend. So they really try to like marry up the two sports and had some interesting back and forth about the similarities and differences of the two of the two series, which I thought was, um, was a good move. I agree. Uh, I think those are great observations. The thing that I appreciated the most about the whole FP one thing though, was just being able to see Antonio Giovinazzi firmly secure his lack of place in any future F one season that, that warmed my heart more than anything. Yeah, crashing 11 minutes in um, and not being one of the young drivers, being the seasoned guy trying to have a chance to come back. I mean, he definitely made a case to to keep Mick Schumacher. So I hope I hope Mick bought him some drinks afterwards. Everybody's like, oh, it's super windy out there. It's like, nah, man. <laughs> nope. Like, can't do that. 
it's not one of those sports where he, I mean, he's already gotten more than one chance. So I, I, I would question why he even deserved to have that practice session to begin with. Like, why is he still hanging around? What did he do in his time in F1 that's notable enough to merit him still kind of lingering in the background as an option? Doesn't make sense to me. Um, I mean, frankly, even, I think- even less so than Hulkenberg, frankly, like it just doesn't make sense. I mean, at least Hulk has come in and like shown some interesting and like impressive performances when he stepped in on a week's note, you know, on a day's notice. But I, I think Geo just it, it probably goes to show the strength of those manufacturer relationships. You know, his relationship with Ferrari for you know, I guess obvious reasons potentially, right? Like outside of nationalistic reasons, I'm not really sure. Performance on track was never there, so hey, well, yeah, I mean. I, I think that's probably more insulting for Mick to be even potentially replaced by Giovinazzi versus one of these other young drivers more than anything. But I just imagine Mick watching that being like, yeah, not so fucking easy, is it? So, <laughs> nah, dude, I'm sure he was making sure there wasn't a camera on him when that, that happened. He probably went back into his freaking cool down room and was like, you know, flips his visor down. <laughs> yeah. Just sits there and smiles. Um, yeah. Well, look, I think, um, so practice was interesting. Qualifying was was interesting. But I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't really touch on probably the most important, the most notable part of the entire entire weekend. Look, I think I, I think we we showered some early praise on the Americans in terms of track design, efficiency of of events. Um, one of the things that uh, clearly we are unable to do is properly wave a checkered flag or choose a person <laughs> who's capable of waving a checkered flag. We've had a bad run, man. <laughs> yeah, we've had a bad run. And fairly, Serena Williams was in Monaco when she had her sort of flag-waving incident. So technically didn't happen at a USGP. And I'll give her some credit. Um it was a very windy day that day in, in Monaco. So she, she had a lot to contend with. Tim, I, I think the conditions were a little bit more docile. That and, was like but, the most corporate limp dick flag wave that you could possibly have pulled out. It was terrible. I mean, you have to put waving in, in air quotes. I mean, I think the definition to him is, you know, utilizing the maximum range of motion for whatever android skeletal structure is in the Tim Cook bot. But, I mean, yeah, that was the least inspiring or vigorous waving of the checkered flag I'd ever seen. It was funny. Even on Ocon's radio, I, he was like, oh, is that is that the checkered flag? Is the race over? I didn't see it. I'm like, yeah, no shit you didn't see it because it was <laughs> being waved by a respirating mannequin. <laughs> Why <I> don't was, <laughs> Hang on. I got more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it almost... It almost made me think that like Tim Cook's never actually moved his wrists out of the like optimal typing posture. <laughs> so and all that all that taught me was apparently, you know, in the pursuit of corporate power and success, one has to sacrifice every modicum of like physicality and comp- competence in any other domain. So if that's what it takes to climb to like the the pinnacle of the corporate ladder, count me it, out. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Count me the fuck out. <laughs> okay, broader. Are you sorry? Do you have do you have more? No, no. That's 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 the extent of it. Okay. Why do you think Tim Cook, Stefano Domenicali, and Ed Sheeran were hanging out in a box <laughs> together? Why? 
<laughs> well, I also loved in the broadcast how it like cut out Tim Cook out of the shot and was like just bylined Ed Sheeran's name. It's like, whoa, all the celebrities are here. It's like, yeah, because Ed Sheeran is really like the the core of the power structure that's at the Austin GP. It's like totally the bullshit like celebrity culture rather than you had like the head of a like the CEO of AMD there, Tim Cook. There was another guy standing next to him. Like, yeah, like Ed Sheeran was so far down the totem pole. Uh, it's not even well. Funny. He's got a big deal with Apple Music. I know that. So like, he has a huge relationship with Apple. Well, he did the he did the concert, the concert there. Yeah. What commercial reason was Tim Cook there though? Is what I really want to know. Because as far as I know, there isn't an existing commercial relationship between F1 and Apple. And obviously, they're a huge player and could be a corporate sponsor in a bunch of other places. But that's got to be as simple as it is, right? Like Stefano Domenicali is just trying to get Apple as a brand sponsor on board or. You think there's something else there? Well, aren't they going to make an Apple car? Maybe they're going to be the uh, next manufacturer in the door. Oh, you mean like a commercial car? Yeah. No, I. Um, which seems dead. So, I mean, yeah, you'd have to think it's sponsorship. I, I. He didn't seem wildly interested. Like, I can't imagine he's wildly interested in the sport, given his lack of enthusiasm to wave the checkered flag. But, you know, I don't know if he just got some invite and showed up because it's a thing happening. And Yeah, I, I can't imagine anything outside of sponsorship or being the cloud provider for one of these one of these teams maybe it's like the microsoft surface of the nfl and they're hoping that people in f1 will maybe treat their devices with a bit more decency than the i was gonna say (laughs) that sponsorship hasn't worked out well for microsoft because it's all all it's turned into is a bunch of gifts of tom brady fucking shattering those things (laughs) over his knee same for Bo. You think Bose is regretting their their sponsorship of F1 after Toto freaking just yeeted one of those pairs of headphones last year in Abu Dhabi? Look, I think I think these companies are missing like beautiful opportunities for like viral marketing. I don't know about the the surface if it actually like broke, but if those Bose headphones still work, like that should be their whole commercial is like Toto smashing them and like putting them back on and be like, damn, these still work great. Yeah, you, know? you got to lean into it. Were, problem is, they were probably in six pieces, so I don't think they were going to get away with that without some creative photo editing. And Tom's the goat, so there's no way he left the uh, he left that surface alive. Yeah. Um, I guess the other question I have is like the the whole checkered flag thing brought me back to like 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 opening pitches. Like, who doesn't practice this? Like, didn't Tim like shouldn't have Tim Cook asked? One of his minions for like a like a flag. He couldn't have had five minutes beforehand to like warm up. Like who dude, who is going to be on like a nationally televised thing and like dude, doesn't give it five minutes of warm up? Is he just think he just doesn't give a fuck, or does he not realize like <laughs> how absurd it looked? It's one of two things. It's either that he doesn't like give a fuck because he has so many more important things he does on an average day, which is likely what it is. Or he's so far out of his normal context that he genuinely like doesn't know how to operate in those settings and is a total fish out of water. I'm open to either being true. Uh, I think he probably is a robot. I think that your theory probably is. <laughs> he, he didn't quite have the he didn't have like the F one attendance uh, programmed into him. Yeah, like, you know, I'm not gonna invite Elon Musk to come speak to underprivileged school kids and expect it to go well. Right. Like there's just like some, some guys like, Hey man, that's just not my thing, you know? And that's fine. Like the thing that is your thing, you're really fucking good at. And that's great, but that ain't it. You know? 
it was a classic lesson of stick to your lane. You know, yeah, yeah. You got, you're good at a lot of things. You don't need to be good at everything. The Serena one was disappointing though, because you would think that in her natural athleticism that would have come come easy, but. And I mean, Maybe I feel like the flag waving motion is is more akin to a tennis swing as well. I mean, I thought she would have been ripping that thing at the seams, but she was uh, she was all equally as as unconfident. Well, speaking of viral marketing, if F one really wants to lean into this next year, they need to get somebody like fucking Richard Simmons, so it's going to stand up there and like shake his ass and <laughs> twirl the twirl the thing as hard as possible, and then put him on camera for like thirty seconds. Make I it. think, yeah, I think the. The, if we're going to go this route and not have somebody like official or oriented in the sport waving the flag, it should just become a total sideshow. And, and we should just get every country's most absurd character to attempt to wave the flag. I'm full support of that. I think we've given flag waving its, uh, <laughs> its airspace on the podcast. I don't think it was well-deserved. Maybe, maybe Tim's gotten maybe more, more time than he deserves, but uh, we had to hit on that. Um, all right, let's move to actual matters of substance. Uh, quick, quick race recap here. Look, Red Bull in Austin securing the constructors' championship. Hamilton so close to his Dude. first win of the season. To can I just his... briefly own goal? No, no, please I just did... interrupt the only I, like, the first three seconds here. I know. I'm just saying. I did predict a Hamilton win this weekend. And you I did. Was very, I was. You very were close. so close. Yes. Pat Sorry. yourself on the back. It was. Thank I'm you. glad you got the. Do you feel validated now? Should we elaborate on that? Yeah. More? No. 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 You can continue. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so almost the first win for Mercedes of the season. An opportunity for Hamilton to kind of maintain his record of wins in every season um, of his career. Uh, largely helped out by efforts of his own teammate Russell taking out the pole position sitter and second place at the time uh, signs on lap one. Meanwhile, Nor- Nor- Norris salvaged his race to close the gap um, on Alpine, and Aston Martin, except for you know Lance Stroll, had an amazing weekend before he threw away a ton of points to ultimately capture the lead from Al- Alpha uh, Romeo and um, Alonso. Again, wild weekend. You know, looked good had a crash, came storming back, only to have it snatched away by the FIA. So, And look, that's just a, a handful of the, the narratives. It seems like every team and every driver had something of note. Um, so let's run through that in more detail. So we had Red Bull, again, securing Constructors' Championship. First time since, what, 2013, I believe? Um, and interesting uh, to yep. see a team come sort of storming back Um after losing prominence, I think you've seen a lot of stories of teams being successful and then falling off. But again, great to see another resurgence. Um, Verstappen tied the single season record for wins at 13, three more races to potentially break that record. And now Perez, I believe just two points off Leclerc for second in the driver's championship after finishing third behind Leclerc. Yep. I, I think the whole, to your point about the kind of the, Red Bull, like the rarity of having a kind of a team reassert itself. It, it, it reinforces my theory, and Adrian Newey has said this as much, like Red Bull's always had a great car, and by great car, I mean great aero and a great chassis, but they entered into a period where they just couldn't compete on engine, and that was the series of Mercedes dominance. And now they've gotten to parity, which is all they needed on that dimension, and they're back with the aero excellence they've always had, right? So... 
you know, it makes sense with the benefit of hindsight. Super impressive, though. Yeah. And just to clarify, I said Perez was third. You had Verstappen, Hamilton, Leclerc on the podium, Perez in fourth behind Leclerc. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it seems like Honda was finally able to deliver a better product. And then you've just seen the genius come through in the in the aero package. Where do you put this Perez performance relative? Because he's kind of been through the whipsaw in the second half of the season of like, oh, he's just another Albon to oh, he's special street track, you know, God, where is this in his, like, trajectory of getting better or getting worse? I want to give him more credit. I would argue this is exactly where I would expect him to be. He was a couple of tenths off in qualifying. Um, I think it was two tenths off of Verstappen, three tenths off, off pole. All right, that's what I've come to expect. I thought he did a decent job. I think he's shown a good level of like aggressiveness, albeit it kind of bit him when he passed Botas on lap one because he got some end plate damage, which I think afflicted him throughout the rest of the race. But exiting the pit after a bit of a slow stop, um, he was wheel to wheel with Russell and he showed some good aggressiveness through the first couple of turns to maintain that lead. So, And he made some good progress through the field early. So again, I think it was a, it was a solid weekend. It wasn't stellar. He didn't really have that much negative against him from like a really bad pit or really significant damage. Um, so yeah, I mean, this this was to me the right form that he needs to have um, to continue to deliver for the team. How about you? Yeah, well, more I mean, or less credit. I yeah, I give him credit and also a little bit of benefit of the doubt considering you raced the entire time without an in plate, which I mean, it's got to have some impact. <laughs> Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, given like, the overall wing performance, I, I think you get a lot of front end down force. I think that also directs the wind to the rest of the body um, pretty significantly. So, yeah, it had to hurt him. He probably could have been on podium this race without that, which, again, is where he should be. And I don't really even give him fault for the Botas contact because he was alongside Botas in the preceding co- corner. And Botas, I just didn't see him come up on that corner and didn't check his mirror and just turned in like he wasn't there. So I wouldn't expect Perez to do anything different there. Yeah, I fully agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, so to that point, though, given the potential performance loss, this was a two pit stop race. Pits came pretty early in the race, given tire degradation and everybody starting on mediums. Do you think they should have replaced Perez's front wing? earlier in the race like what was the calculus on that because sky acknowledged it as early as lap two the end plate broke off as of lap six so they had a number you know they had another 50 laps that he could have driven even though it's like a 12 second stop to change a wing i think crofty said so yeah i don't know yeah i mean they when they fucked max's pit stop they basically fucked it for the amount of time it would have taken to replace a front wing and so but I think early on in the race, you're more worried about giving up track position and then that impacting, like, they may have messed up Max's pit stop, but he did come out in cleaner air and he had less cars to kind of get through to make up for it. Albeit they were tough cars to get through, like, they were less. So it probably is the balance of, like, track position, relative performance loss probably wasn't huge. I don't know. The exact math was probably, like, right on the line of being, you know, zero sum either way you approached it, but. Um, he seemed like he was still able to overtake people even after it had come off. It'd been another thing if he had been losing positions, but that wasn't the case. So, yeah, I think you're right. There was probably just not a great pit window. I don't know if he would have come out behind everybody, and maybe that would actually been 
advantageous, but yeah, yeah, you'd have to go back and look at that. But um, and then you know I've, we've made a big we we've made a big hubble loop about this whole season around how drivers talk on the radio because I think it's one of the more interesting parts that makes F1 unique to really any other sport except some of the mic'd up stuff in in football or where maybe you get some hot mics in in basketball but for stopping again really slow pit stop his radio reaction was you know beautiful fucking beautiful you know max you got a long ride so you don't have to tell me i guess what was your take on sort of max max this weekend uh people are gonna hate this what i'm about to say i mean like deeply hate this but you gotta hear me out Max has got a little Mamba mentality in him, which is he's not done killing you when he's done killing you. And I think that he genuinely is like, if I don't win every fucking race for the rest of the year, I'm going to lose my mind, is how he really thinks about it. And so, like, the intensity and the sometimes immaturity that comes through on team radio when somebody fucks something up and it puts him behind the eight ball... It's not calibrated to, like, I've already locked up the world championship. It's calibrated to, like, I'm trying to bury these fools in the most extreme way possible. You think he's going to let Checo pass him to win his home Grand Prix next week if they're going 1-2? <laughs> no fucking way, man. Like, no way. So, I, I just think that's how he's – that's that's his mental model for success is, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you as thoroughly as possible. And so – Things like this, outbursts like this, will never surprise me. No matter how far he is in front of the pack, it it doesn't make that just doesn't make a difference to him. Well, and and it's interesting. I wa- I went back and watched some of the highlights of the Mexico Grand Prix from like 2019, and it's just interesting to see a few of the stupid, overly aggressive moves that Verstappen made even then, right? And so I think you've seen so much more maturity in his driving style, but you just haven't seen that in the the personnel like. The, the personality dynamic over radio. But to your point, I don't know that it's like truly burying people or it's, hey, I expect to win each and every race. And so we're in this race right now. I'm leading it. Things need to be perfect. And so, yeah, look, I, I respect the way Hamilton and, and others handle things on the radio more professionally, but I also kind of like the, the kind of cutthroat nature. And look, you imagine some of the things that either Jordan or Kobe would have said if they were mic'd up all the time, I mean, it would have been insane. So it, it's got to be relatively tame, and he's not cursing anybody out. So the, give him the, Chris, the criticism of Max is he's super critical of his teammates when they screw up, but he's not equally accountable when he's the one that screws up. You know what I mean? Like, he, he's, he, he's, he's a bit blame-shifting when it's his fault. And then very, very snappy when it isn't, which is a fair, it's always been a fair criticism of him. Um, that I just think you just have to accept about Max Verstappen if you want to be a fan of Max Verstappen's. I, you know, I, I don't hope to be that way, you know, with people that I work with and am friends with, but like I respect him as a competitor and he makes the sport more fun. And so, like, I, I just accept that about him, you know. Also, to be fair, this season, it's hard to find many places where he's actually made mistakes. I mean, he's, by and large, been pretty flawless this season. And I think he's expecting his team to be the same, which I think you you have to. But I think you can also talk to people in a, in a different manner that emphasizes, you know, highlights failure, but is also encouraging at the same time and praises the work that others do, which I think he's getting a little better at. But it's, uh, 
it's been a long journey. Let's just say that. Um, all right, moving on from that, I mean, I, I know you made notes in our last episode about wanting to talk a little bit about worse merchandising on the grid. Look, I know you are a man who is all about style over substance, um, using facades to overshadow any sort of personal deficits. Um, I want to give you, I know we missed it last week, but I'd love to get your take on Red Bull gear, who is really the worst, and and maybe who's the, who's on the other end of the spectrum. So first off, Red Bull had a new merch drop over the last month, and they now have a like a Hawaiian print hat that has like a clean Red Bull rectangle logo and nothing else. Like there's no like gaudy yellow or anything. I sent it to my brother and Chase. And I was like, hey, what do you guys think about this? I feel like I might finally buy something. And they basically vomited on me through the phone. So like I, I it's like I can't win. <laughs> like we're I'm kind of a member of the evil empire now. So I think no matter what the thing looks like, it's gonna be a Gucci handbag, and they would probably tell me it looked like a piece of shit. But, uh, I mean, I don't think that there's really a candidate for worse merchandise other than Red Bull. I think they're kind of in a league of their own, to be honest, which is really sad considering how strong of, like, a brand they are. I just think their merchandise sucks, dude. They haven't, like, they they haven't, like, the thing about Mercedes is they have a lot of sponsors, but they've made all their sponsors just like a very non-offensive white logo. And so when they plaster all of them over the shirt, it doesn't overwhelm you. But Red Bulls is like, you got the green tag logo up here. You got the yellow bull. You got like all these other things. And they're just like, and then you got this crazy ass, like huge bull running across the bottom of the shirt. I mean, it's just like, looks like a fucking graffiti in like, in like center city, Philadelphia. Um, so I think they're definitely the worst. I think Mercedes has got the best apparel. I, I don't like, it's a clean logo, black and white, super fresh. The Mercedes logo itself is really good. And then, like I said, they handle the cloud, crowdedness of their sponsors really well um, and have a lot of like fashion line level stuff. Some of it as a result of Lewis's partnership with Tommy Hilfinger, uh, like that doesn't even have other sponsors on it. So I think they're the best, but and in in the lead by quite a bit. Well, even their like highly branded Tommy Hilfiger shirt like looks really clean, and so I don't think how Tommy Hilfiger is going to let their stuff look like shit. Just inundated with logos, like they definitely have a more mature look. Red Bull's a little bit overbearing, and is like what you'd wear in high school because it's like dope, man. But yeah, I think again, like they're just a marketing company, and so they're just trying to maximize real estate and size of of brand sponsors. But yeah, I, that's why I didn't ultimately pull the trigger. I also think I would have to say, after all the color change from T Force India, um, dude, Aston Martin's looks really clean as well. Like it's a nice green, green, the lime accent. You know, yeah. you can't beat the Aston Martin logo. So they're they're up there. It, it puts off. It, it uh it it um evokes like Seattle Seahawk like NFL jersey. It's very like executive feeling. Yeah, yeah. The other, um, I'll tell you the other one that I think is probably the most, it's got the most potential and is being the most underutilized right now. And it's purely because their apparel manufacturer is fucking Umbro, which is like, I don't know who wears Umbro, but is it's, it's Williams, dude. Williams' color scheme and the simplicity of that W logo, they could crush apparel if they were worth a damn on the track and weren't 
having Umbro, like, <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. Like, I don't even remember. I don't think I've ever owned anything made by Umbro. Maybe I think that's the only I'm thing not... I've had from Umbro was like some soccer cleats when I was five years old. That was the, yeah. The souls fell off like second season, second game of the season. Yeah, like it's like third world soccer nation type quality stuff. <laughs> but like Umbro is the shit that like an NGO donates to like a soccer field in Kenya. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> like. like that's what's propping Umbro up. <laughs> and somehow they've secured a Williams apparel deal. It, it makes no sense to me. Uh, it, it, like, Doralton Capital's got more money than that now. It's like, take care of this. Person. Well, my two questions. Why is Umbro advertising in Formula One anyway? Is that really their target market? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> and two, can you explain to me the whole AlphaTari business model with, like, high fashion? I think that's well, all Will Buxton wears officially, but I, <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm like technically they have the best apparel to be honest, but what what is the theory there? Red Bull AlphaTauri is a like stylish, like high end fashion label of Red Bull that was basically established to promote the Red Bull brand, but it's like. Why are they excluding the actual Red Bull team that everyone gives a shit about from benefiting from like the fashion of Alpha? Because your Alpha Tower is it's incredibly stylish, and in Europe is like a popular clothing brand. I think for like hybrid luxury, like adventure kind of wearers. You know? Yeah, neither of us could pull it off. Let's be honest. It's, it's definitely, definitely a, not. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah. Why are they not utilizing the yeah. design sense of? The Alphatari brand. Like, Red Bull's like, hey guys, we're sending you fucking chassis. Like, maybe just give us a couple polos. Like, <laughs> yeah, because you just could you just design us a T-shirt that doesn't look like <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I'm not really sure to be honest with you why there's so much separation there, but it's a good shout. Their color scheme is clean, and they don't they don't clutter the, clutter their shit up with logos. But they also like they have an apparel line that has nothing to do with the F1 team. So, yeah. It's almost a genius approach, but then it's like they just they just missed it, you know? Like they haven't made that last last step to like that last realization. So I also think Red Bull, like there's almost a part of it where it's like Yeah, you're either cool enough to wear it or fuck you. You know, like you're gonna wear what we put out or not. And plenty of people have jumped on board. So, you know, it's almost like there's an element of it's so overt and overdone that like that's the style. Right. I don't care if the logo necessarily is overt because it is so iconic. It's just the sponsors. They just abuse their stuff just covering it in sponsors. And it's just like, I'm not wearing this shit literally anywhere but a racetrack. Like, you know, like... You know, like, in, uh, there's, like, a college football tradition, like, in the South, where, like, the Friday before a big game weekend, you wear your school's colors, and it's just, like, a Nike polo with a tiger paw on it, and it's, like, perfectly acceptable in any, like, corporate venue, but it's, like, what, before, like, a big race weekend, I'm gonna show up with, like, a big-ass Tag Heuer logo, like, slapped across my chest at work, like, repping Red Bull Racing? Look like a fucking idiot, like, it just... It's not usable in any other context of life, and that's a problem. And if it was, I'd buy more of it. So, like, please do something about it. Well, while I agree with your point on principle, I, I hate to be the one to break it to you, Graham, but 
I don't know that it was acceptable when you wore that gaudy orange and purple Clemson Tigers polo. I don't think anybody looked at that and thought, that guy is a man of class and style. You, you, you need to understand your target audience because across our 25 listeners, half of them are my friends and family, and all of them are Clemson grads. So you better fucking watch yourself. Like, like bring the heat. <laughs> Says the I stand about. by it. I'm a, look, I'm a Packers fan, and we have green and gold. You can't wear that shit anywhere. You're, wear, like, you're sitting there wearing a sweatshirt with a Canadian maple leaf on it. You don't know what you stand for. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have a clue. I'm a man of no principle. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on. Back back to the race. Out of, out of Graham's closet and back to the track. Uh, let's move on to Ferrari. So, what has to be said, overall, disappointing weekend for Ferrari despite looking so good early on. I mean, they qualified 1-2. Leclerc took a grid penalty and was able to battle back. But signs taken out lap one uh, by Russell. Really, the, the battle for second place in both constructors and the driver championship very much alive, albeit more so in the driver's championship than constructors. That one's still a bit of a, bit of a stretch for Mercedes. Um, but... We've certainly seen crazier things, and Ferrari is not immune to total implosions. So opportunity still lurks for Mercedes. But um, signs DNF, you had Hamilton finishing in front of Leclerc. So Ferrari dropped 14 points um, to Mercedes. Now the gap's just 53 points, while Leclerc, finishing ahead of Perez, has a two-point lead in the Drivers' Championship. Um, First off, Let's talk about um, signs and the incident lap one. Obviously, Russell made contact. He got a five-second penalty. But do you think signs deserves some fault for the crash? No. No. Really? Yeah, I don't. I need. I know the argument is that he was he cut back inside pretty abruptly, um, but. At the end of the day, he realized the door was getting shut on him on the outside. He had track position to Russell. He was trying to make a move to get a better position to Max going into the the S turns in sector one and stay closer to him. And I th- I think he was entitled to that position. At at worst, I chalk it up as a racing incident. Um, and that stuff just happens on lap one. But um, to say that I think he's at fault, I think would be a little bit of a stretch. Um. It, he he's racing for first and he was reacting to quickly having a door shut on him. And, you know, I just think, yeah, it is what it is, but yeah, look, I think Russell, was- Russell steamed in hot trying to hold off Hamilton. So if anything, like if we're thinking about like who had better car control at that moment, I think it's hard to ignore the fact that signs did. And if anything, he kind of, yeah, he just cut it a little too hard back inside, but yeah, look, I don't think I'm, I have a hard time seeing how Russell was even going to make that corner without crossing the entire track. I mean, one, he locked up and he was still Agreed. hot through the corner. That being so, so yes, while maybe signs doesn't deserve quote unquote fault. I think when you look at it from, are you doing the best thing for your ultimate chances of success? Signs tried to pull an over under like, fair. like nobody was even behind him. Like it was just him and Verstappen on the track. And he had to better realize I got two other guys right behind me. I can't just try to swing under and and get better exit speed than Verstappen. He needed to maintain that outside line, and he had a it, almost a whole car's width of length outside of him that he could have stayed. So 
does that say that Simon, or Russell still wouldn't have torpedoed him? It's hard to say because Russell was coming in hot, but I think I think Signs lacked a bit of situational awareness and was too focused That's on fair. what was in front of him rather than being a bit more defensive and realizing Leclerc's already down the grid and I need to maintain a top two position here to get some points. I think that'd be a fair criticism if he was in like a position in the driver's championship that he couldn't afford to lose, like he was competing for a championship. He's kind of in like a, I've had enough bad luck this season, I don't really have anything to lose type position. So I get it. It's like you don't want to lose the – they're not at immediate risk of losing the constructors to Mercedes. So I I, I see your point. I, I still don't know if I totally fault him. So. Yeah, but he is now 16 points behind Russell for for fourth in drivers. I don't know how much what people care about that after yeah. a certain point. But, I mean, yeah, while they're not hugely at risk, they are still at risk at losing second, which leads me to my next question, which is how big of a failure will this be for Ferrari if they can't hold off Mercedes at this point? I mean, will that just be utter embarrassment? We've talked about it before, but like that is the nail in the coffin for Bonanno, right? Yeah. And look, I mean, the tracks we have left, I don't know if I feel great about Mercedes in Mexico, but I definitely feel good about them in Brazil and Abu Dhabi. So a couple, just a couple more like of typical Ferrari things. They're, they're going to lose to, <laughs> they're going to lose. I I think I bet on that maybe pre-summer break, like right before the summer break, that Mercedes was going to overtake them. I'd still I'd still hold that bet. I'd take the same odds at this point. I think I would. So turning to the Drivers' Championship, what would be a bigger disappointment? If Perez doesn't win, doesn't get second in Drivers, or if Leclerc doesn't get second? Because in essence, Perez has a Constructors' Championship winning car, but if Leclerc doesn't even get second, they basically go home with like nothing notable. A bigger disappointment for the driver themselves or for the team? I, I guess both, but I, I was thinking more so from like a team perspective. Well, the answer differs because I don't think Red Bull gives a shit if Perez lo- – I mean, they give a <laughs> shit, but I don't think they really give a shit if Perez loses to Leclerc. Ferrari obviously gives a huge shit, um, vice versa. Uh and I think Leclerc equally. So, yeah. So you think you think Ferrari Leclerc? It's a bigger disappointment if they don't come home with with second. Yeah, I mean he yeah, Perez certainly didn't have a thirty point lead in the drivers' championship at one point this season, and Leclerc did. So, yeah. Yeah, it just brings home the the nature of Ferrari's failure as, of, of the season overall. So that so on that note of failure. What is your prediction for Mexico? What will be the source of Ferrari's disappointment um, this weekend? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. Maybe fan interference. This might be a, you know, you got the stadium in Sector 3. They're really close to the track. They're super passionate Mexican fans. Maybe somebody's going to throw some debris and knock out a Ferrari. I mean, Mm. crazier things have happened. If it was going to happen any weekend, it might be this one. High altitude, engine reliability, maybe get some. I don't know. It could be any number of things. Could be another strategy blunder. I, you know, you saw Leclerc take new engine components. I'm calling a signs engine failure due to outperformance at high altitude. Well, you remember how str- – I mean, I know Sainz's car literally caught on fire in Austria, but you remember how strong Leclerc's pace was in Austria at altitude. So the opposite could happen, you know. Or if the car doesn't explode – they actually may be really strong. I, was gonna say, also I think maybe, they're on pace for a great week. I think they're on pace for a great weekend if they finish, which is always the 
is always the big if. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's move on to Mercedes then. Overall, solid weekend. Looked good through practice and qualifying. Outperformed Ferrari in the race, as I already mentioned. Um, and given Hamilton's second place, while Russell finished further down the grid, Hamilton now just 20 points behind Russell for fourth in drivers' um, championship. Um I mean, how impressive will that be after Hamilton lost ground early in the season and qualifying in races to have some other issues as well to actually beat Russell um, at the end of the season? Goat being the goat, man. And he's just staying calm, collected, not pressing too hard. It's really impressive. Uh, I really, I wanted, I kind of wanted him to win in Austin, honestly. I think the fans would have loved that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not much else you can really say other than just like hats off. Yeah, hundred percent. I was I was pulling for him as well. I mean, do you just do you just chalk that up to Hamilton being supremely consistent as being one of the greatest of all time, or do you think Russell has has fractured a little bit at the end of the season because you know he was getting labeled as Mister Consistency early in the season, but it seems like the true Mr. Consistency has retaken his crown. So who do you give, I guess, credit or fault to? Is that, is that Hamilton's success or, or Russell's failure here at the end? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Hamilton's definitely put the squeeze on him and forced him into some, I mean, you could argue that the fight that he had into turn one was Hamilton forcing him into an error because Russell was really keen and wanted to establish track position on the inside, even though he didn't really have it. Um, so, yeah, probably a little bit of both. Uh, I, look, I don't blow it out as like this super concerning thing that puts George Russell's future in doubt by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just kind of like, yeah, man, you had a really good run for the first half of the season and eventually it was going to come back and work the other way. It's just kind of how that shit worked. Like, that's just kind of the forces of the universe, you know? Um, but Yeah, it does feel a bit like he was in such a good position and he sees it sort of slowly slipping away. He's losing the qualifying battle to Hamilton. Hamilton's like finishing better in races now. And it seems like he's just he's just overdriving that little bit, right? Like, did he really need yeah. to try to pass Hamilton and Signs going into turn one? Like, no, he, he could have played the long game. Something else could have happened to Hamilton. So, yeah, yeah, he's just I think he's been a little bit over aggressive than maybe he was at the start of the season. So I, I think it's been uh, good to maybe put him back in his place a little bit and and have him grow up some. I heard somebody make the argument over the weekend that like they could all similar to how people have kind of talked about the Red Bull versus Checo development kind of dynamic that they're developing the car towards Lewis because he's their guy. I don't think the Mercedes is developing that car towards anyone in particular. I think they're just trying to develop it in general. (laughs) So I don't think that argument holds much water, but like in another year where they're more competitive, maybe sure. Lewis is still going to be their guy. I mean, it's not, it seems like he wants to keep racing three, four, five more years. Who knows? So, um, he's earned, unless his performance really starts slipping on a consistent basis, he's earned prioritization in the team room. And so um, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Especially if you believe that early in the season, he was testing more more things than maybe Russell was getting sort of the, the more stable package. Um, he's clearly shown that in, in equal. But in terms of that development journey, do you think Mercedes has effectively closed the gap to to Ferrari and and what odds would you place on them, you know, 
moving up into second place for for next season in, in constructors. Not on t- maybe on like race pace at certain tracks with certain weather, sure, but not total car performance. Certainly not on qualifying pace. So um, I still think that they will very much pivot, develop like uh, car philosophy wise in the off season, um, because I think that the um, they're not going to be able to make that car design predictable enough. I think in all environments, that's the thing that Red Bull's really nailed is like, they've got an efficient car and they're able to make it efficient on different tire compounds, different tracks, different temperatures. And that's just Mercedes hasn't had it. And this was a track where the characteristics, it's a built for purpose racetrack. The temperatures were hotter. They were able to get the tires into the window and it worked for them, but that doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere. So no, I don't think they're on par with Ferrari developmentally. This just happened to be a weekend where they were, um, but it's still it with this car isn't going to be true every other track. So, but I do think at least I, I do think they're missing some pace still. But if they start next season the way they finish this one, I don't think you're going to see Ferrari get a massive gap. And so I, I think you'll have a neck and neck battle with them, which should be really interesting for for next year. Let's close out on on Mercedes. I want to touch on one thing, Russell. Two questions for you. One, do you think the five-second penalty was fair? Was it too lenient? And then he actually made an apology post-race. He didn't take blame initially on track, but he did uh, post-race. Was that written by George? Do you think that was the PR team stepping in, or, or do you think maybe Hamilton's leaning over his shoulder, helping proofread and add a little line at the end of uh, some diplomacy? I don't know about the apology, but did you see the video clip in the cool-down room where – uh, Charles was like, what happened to Carlos? Cause he had no idea. Like, I guess what had happened to him. And Lewis just looked at him and he was like, George took him out. <laughs> like, no, that <laughs> as a matter of fact, I mean, he called it. Um, no, I didn't, which actually led to my biggest frustration. So I've fully converted to just all F1 broadcast. I'm off. Of, I'm off of sky. Um, 100%. But Gave me some pause. The cool down room. Freaking broadcasters talked through the whole damn thing. So no, I missed that component. So maybe I need to pivot back. Yeah. Um. Yeah, what was your first question? Uh. Was the five second penalty harsh enough? Uh. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Um. I don't know what in my eyes would have made him have earned a ten second penalty. Maybe if he'd taken out two cars. I don't know. Um. Kind of seems to be I a think, precedent. I think you give him a little bit of leniency just on the basis that shines kind of changed his racing line, like pretty abruptly. And it was hard for him to predict that. But at the end of the day, he's got to be held accountable for the fact that he came into the inside of a turn on the first lap of a race, really fucking hot. And he needed the cars in front of him to behave very, very precisely for him to get away with it. And and that's, that's just too much. So. Yep. I think that's fair. All right, let's move on to Alpine. So Man, a massive missed opportunity to to put a dagger in McLaren this week. Alonzo crashing from 7th or 8th, depending on how you count it. I mean, basically 7th because he would have passed, passed Stroll. Um, and, and Norris right behind him. And so now, you know, Norris finishing in front of, of, of those guys. Um, look, Alonzo qualified in 9th, ended up starting 14th for, for engine reasons. Ocon really kind of shocking qualifying performance out in Q1, 18th, ended up starting from the grid, taking a number of engine components. But, I mean, fascinating race for Alonso. Pitted under the safety car because him and O'Connor were both on, I believe, a, a hard strategy, sort of go along the first stint. 
He exited ninth on mediums ahead of Norris, who was on hards. He made a great pass on Gasly for eighth place. Um, but then ultimately, chasing Stroll went right up to his bumper before making a move to the left. Stroll followed him. Contact ensued. I mean, what was your thoughts on the incident overall? Um, where do you place the blame? 100% stroller, or do you think it's there's some to go around? Man, I heard people starting to be sympathetic to stroll. I thought it the move was super late. When you watch his onboard, like, I, I don't understand how that can be chalked up as, like, a kind of a late move semi-racing incident. That looked super fucking late and super unnecessary. The way he adjusted the wheel... There's only one thing he could have been doing, which was trying to impede a car that had every right to overtake him based on the, the relative pace in the DRS. And that shit is dangerous, man. Like, those types of high-speed collisions, like, I mean, I don't know if you heard Alonso's voice on the radio after he, like, came to after that crash, but, like, I'm sure having the nose of your car fly up in the air and headed straight towards a metal fence is a pretty terrifying feeling. And, like, by and large, like, he kind of got away with one. Could have been a lot worse. So, to me, high-speed collisions where cars hit each other because the guy in front made a late move, especially with the way DRS works and how fast those cars can be passing each other now, the FIA needs to judge that stuff really fucking harshly because that, like, that type of crash is how guys get killed. Like... 220 miles an hour and the front wing comes off and the car, the nose of the car flies up in the air. Like that's that to me, like, I don't know. Can you, I mean, can you rationalize like sympathy for stroll? Cause if I'm missing something, I'd love to hear it, but I really couldn't. The only defense that I could think of in watching his onboard and, and, and Alonzo's as well was stroll did make like a slight move inside earlier right? He made a, a little bit of like a nod to the left, but it wasn't big enough that like showed the degree of commitment that I'm taking the inside line. It wasn't enough that there was space on the outside for Alonzo to pass. The only point that I would make against Alonzo is he also waited until the absolutely last moment to, to make a move as well. And so he kind of put himself in the position, but you'd had to, I, I mean, at that point he had to think Stroll was maintaining his line the other one the only other point i would make is you can look at a lot of instances where drivers are putting on moves in high speeds and forcing more erratic reaction whether it be at the middle of a straight or even into the braking zone you see drivers move late squeeze etc and so but that being said i mean it, it still seemed very reactionary and very very late for for stroll. He was going to make his move. He needed to do it when he had that first inkling. It's almost like when you change lanes and you're like, you're, I'm, I'm going to change lanes. And they're like, shit, maybe I should check my mirror. And they're like, now I'm good. So yeah, I, I think ultimately the fault still 100% blame falls on stroll. And rightly he's getting a, a penalty for, for next race as well. So shame though. I mean, he had a great qualifying. He really did. And I, it takes a lot for me to say something nice about him, but like, here I am. Uh, he did. Yeah. I mean, Aston was set up for easily their best weekend of the entire season. So, um, you know, and look, I think based on his radio, he took fault for it right away saying like, yeah, I crashed. Um, so he, he knew what he did at the moment, but that leads to the, probably the bigger controversy of the race. So Alonzo has this damage, goes into the pits, 
comes out, you ultimately see that he has um, he has a loose mirror, which subsequently falls off. FIA, the stewards make no mention of it, that, you know, no black and orange flag that he needs to come in for it. But inversely, Alpine didn't make any proactive decision to use some gaffer tape or break it off. So, and that ultimately led Alonso to getting basically a 30 second penalty and dropping him out of the points, um, despite, you know, a phenomenal race overall. What was your take on, on that? I mean, whose responsibility is it ultimately? People will say, well, the stewards should jump in and like make a proactive move. Like teams aren't going to do that proactively, but the rules are written that you can't have like an unsafe car. So they couldn't have like removed the mirror, but they should have also fixed it. Like what's the right, what's the right like sequence of events here? Yeah, look, my my North Star on this one is that there's just absolutely no way you can base the enforcement of this on team protest. Because teams are always going to play their incentives, i.e. Haas, who was trying to get relative position on Alpine based on where they were in the race. Like, there's no way that if you rely on team protest to enforce issues of car safety after the race, you're going to get a consistent enforcement of the rules. There's just no chance. Because then, like, another week, there's going to be a bottom feeder team whose car is a back marker that nobody gives a shit about, but who's got half of their side pod hanging off, and then they get blue flagged, and it happens that as one of the lead cars is going by, something flies off and hits Perez in the head, right? And now everybody cares, but they didn't until something bad happened because the team was at the back of the grid and the protest doesn't serve their own interest. So, like, there's without question for me that it can't be based on team protest. So, for me, it's like either shit or get off the pot stewards, which is like either enforce this stuff objectively because it doesn't seem like it'd be hard to have clear guidelines around, like, what types of partial damage are unsafe and what are not, right? Enforce it or don't. But do not let the teams – that is not the type of thing that teams should be able to influence – even in the race, for that matter. I mean, sure, maybe they can be like a notification mechanism if they see something they don't think the stewards can see. But, dude, after the race, the fact that that has any influence over penalties is an absolute joke to me. Well, and I guess the I guess the Haas protest came in even after whatever sort of window they're supposed to submit it in. And I think the response was like the FI was like, yeah, we couldn't have – it wasn't feasible to meet that deadline. And it's like, well, you guys can't meet any fucking deadline. So I'm not surprised by that at all. Yeah, that is also a joke, but also there shouldn't be a fucking window to begin with. Like, I, like I'm sorry, like, I just don't know why the FIA is inviting teams to play that role. Like, there's an appeals process, as there should be for a lot of other aspects of racing, but like tattletelling on other teams for issues of car safety that should have been obvious to the stewards during the race is just pointless to me. Yeah. Uh, it's a total cop out. Well, the bigger thing for me was just the idea of. Alpine quoting multiple instances of like loose mirrors, broken mirrors in prior races. And the FIA basically saying, coming back and saying, well, that, those, those were ruled incorrectly. Those weren't good precedent. But my view is, well, then you need to step in and make that decision during the race and tell that team that they need to take action. Um, but this like retroactive shit is, is bull. And I think takes away from the, the ability of teams to respond in race. And basically they're saying like, you need to be super proactive and make that determination yourself, which they're always going to be more risk takers than risk averse in those scenarios. And so it's just yeah. it's kind of an unworkable, 
unworkable solution. Make an objective penalty that like if a piece of carbon flies off your car in the middle of the race because it had yeah. been damaged and you chose not to fix it, then you get a penalty. Like even if it doesn't hurt somebody, right? Like there's so many easy ways to tackle that that aren't like let teams lob grenades over the fence after the race based on shit that they saw. That's it just, it's so stupid. Well, similarly, because I, I think it's a different, like there was a lot of comparison to Magnuson. He's gotten three black and orange flags because of loose end plates. Um, you know, I think it's, I think that's more akin to the issue with Perez where six laps passed and Perez got no calls to come into the pit only to have his yeah. sort of front end plate fly off. The mirror, I will argue, is a far more significant thing. So look, if drivers want to come in and say, yeah, I don't care about the risk of getting hit with a front end plate because given the nature of the cars and how common that kind of impact is, I don't want my race ruined by that. So I'll roll the dice on that. The mirror seems a little bit different where I get the argument of a car with no mirror that presents a, a stroll Latifi accident esque, you know, thing to happen more likely. Also, I would have to imagine the mirror is probably far more likely to create a puncture or damage if it comes and hits a driver. So maybe you do treat parts differently as well. Maybe that's a driver decision. Um, but yeah, the, the after the fact, like you saw it on the broadcast, clear as day that that thing was super loose. So call them in and make them gaffer tape it or let them break it off. I don't know. But the, the retroactive and the 32nd, just I know it was like a 10 second. It should have been that a was hit. So that way was like a 20, too it punitive. seems so punitive. So punitive. Uh, yeah. That, I. That was just like a one of those, like, just when you think something else can't go wrong for Alonzo, it does. Like, it was just one of those moments where you just kind of, like, hand on head, like, what the hell? Like, yeah. Hopefully he gets better juju at Aston Martin. Um, well, probably I mean, also feeling better and better about that decision every single week. So I was going to say, I thought he was in a shitty way, you know, halfway through the season. But, man, after this last weekend, they they are looking solid. So maybe, green maybe Alonzo made a, maybe got forced into a good move. The, bone, the bones of that car may actually be good, and it's just taking them a long time to figure out how to use it. I, you never know. Um, you never know. That'll be, a, that'll be a shocker for next season. All right, let's move on to McLaren. Um, I think henceforth we're going to rename this team uh, Team Lando. So uh, Lando finished, I believe, sixth ahead of both Alpines, really even before the Alonzo penalty. Um, helped close the gap to Alpine by seven points. They're now just six points behind. Norris is comfortably in seventh place in the, the driver's championship, really exactly where he should be in the fourth best car. Um, and so really in the race, I mean, Lando, solid overall. Ricardo, I mean, frankly, at this point, who cares? He was out in Q1. He was basically second to last, only in front of um, Latifi. But... I mean, what's your what's your view on on Lando's performance? Because look, he got he got stuck behind Gasly and Botas. He was tenth during the safety car, lost a position to Sonoda. He got caught out on the restart at turn one. He was under threat from Schumacher, but then multiple times passed you know that sort of Botas Gasly section of the track. Do you think this was Lando's best performance of the year? And overall, does Lando deserve a, a sort of a driver of the year award or at least an honorable mention? Maybe an honorable mention, but dude, to say that he's deserving of driver of the year is like saying that an FCS team has a Heisman Trophy candidate on it. It's just like, you don't get to be eligible for best player awards when your team isn't relevant. Like, sorry. Next, please. So, yeah. Has he 
Done more with the car than the car deserved. Yes, that's true of every season because Lando's a great driver. The bigger story for me is just the continual, just absolute train wreck that is Daniel Ricciardo, who I think was as dejected post-race as I've ever seen him, uh, which is shocking considering his future has already been kind of killed. <laughs> so it's not like there's anything hanging in the balance, but he's like, shit. It's like he's like, even in light of that, he's like, shit, man. This is somehow still getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I think even he it couldn't sucks. think that he was going to be racing Latifi um, at the end of the day. So that's that's been he's racing Latifi in a McLaren. I mean, sure, maybe go to Williams, but then what's your then he's got to race Albon. So I mean, shit. This is one of those ain't nothing wrong with the car. You didn't get in a wreck. You didn't hit any debris, and you're racing Latifi. Like e, <laughs> not yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. rough. Um, all right, Alfa Romeo. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say the bigger macro story for me on McLaren this week was the war of is the more recent war of words over the cost cap controversy between Zach Brown and uh, and Christian Horner, which uh, you know I I'm a little surprised by to see Zach Brown with those kind of teeth, considering the financial struggles of McLaren. I think he needs to just keep to himself personally. Uh, but yeah, what's been that, the nature of his was... position? Far more scrutiny of of Red Bull. Well, basically that Red Bull is committing a war crime, essentially, uh, I think (laughs) is basically how he phrased it in his letter is like egregious cheating and should be penalized to the full extent of the law, which I just, I'm surprised he doesn't have better things to do trying to fix their shitty car than write memos to the FIA about the Red Bull cost cap, but that's just me. Anyway. Yeah, maybe it seems like the priorities are a little, are a little messed up, but I mean, I think that just goes to, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but. I think that just goes to like the longer this lingers on, the more of like a gray cloud it is. And it's like, why do we not have clarity? Any kind of public release kind of goes to your point of does this, does it actually ever become public or is this always just sort of a, of a backroom, backroom settlement type situation, which I think would be negative for the sport. And if it's a couple hundred thousand, then like Red Bull should want it to be public. If it's five million, yeah, they probably want to, you want to keep it in the back room. Yeah, well, backdoor settlements are what the FIA specializes in, so I'm sure they won't do anything out of character here. (laughs) Well, they're consistently inconsistent, so we'll see. Um, All right, Alfa Romeo, look, they had a glimmer of hope this weekend. They qualified 10th and 14th, ultimately started 7th and 18th, given Botas moved up the grid, Joe moved down the grid um, with engine penalties, but ultimately Botas with a DNF, ending any hopes of points spinning out into the gravel trap, and now they have just a one-point lead on Aston for sixth in the Constructors' Championship. Still, I believe, haven't gotten any points since, what was it, Melbourne? So, um, look, it would be a huge failure if they if they gave this this spot away. But any takes on Alfa Romeo? I know this is your, like, most vanilla team on the grid, so. I'm more interested in Valtteri Bottas's endurance athlete Instagram stories and the fact that Audi is taking over this team as the primary OEM in 2026. Uh, I have nothing more to comment on the actual race itself. All right. All right. Well, we'll get back to the, uh, the Audi story later. Moving on to Aston Martin. As I said before, this had to be their best overall performance of the season. I mean, Stroll qualifying seventh. He ultimately started fifth. Vettel qualified 12th, so at least he got out of Q1, thank God. Um, but ultimately, uh, phenomenal. Re- and at one point, they were running sixth and seventh up until the point that 
Stroll pulled a Latifi and, and crashed Alonso. Um, but Vettel still finishing seventh after passing Magnussen on the last lap, euphoric at the end of it. I mean, it was great to hear him on the radio, how excited he was. Um, I mean, I guess now just one point behind Alfa Romeo. I mean, what's your prediction given their trajectory? Do you think they, uh, they end up taking the lead here? And then what does this mean for, I guess, their, their prospects for next season? I'm sorry. What'd you say? I fell asleep after you mentioned Alfa Romeo. <laughs> have we, yeah, have we finished the grid? Have we finished the grid walk yet? <laughs> I, uh, sure. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if they'll pass them. Don't care. Won't notice if they do. Won't notice if they don't. <laughs> so Alpha's just invisible to you at, at this point. Alpha's invisible to me. Haas is invisible to me. Alpha Tauri is also invisible to me. Uh, yeah. But how about Aston? You think they have? You think they have better prospects next season? I mean, you think they're going to take yeah. the lead? And they're, and they're interesting insofar as their trajectory makes them potentially a top four team next year, which, yeah, who knows? I mean, they're, they, they could come in with a lot of hype in the off season. So it's important from that regard, whether that trajectory has them overtake the team in front of them. I, you know, uh, I could, uh, I could care less about. I mean, it's interesting to see that really that whole battle up from like fourth through seventh really actually is still alive. Right. Well, I mean, Alpine and McLaren are, a stretch ahead. I mean, it's still reasonably tight depending on how the end of the season goes. And if it's like one team has an awesome weekend, um, you know, I, you, you could see quite a bit of movement. So we'll, do, you, uh, do you, do you know how big the, the prize money differences are at that, like that low in the table? I actually just don't even know how meaningful those types of positions are. To, I know that like the difference between three and four is meaningful, but like, I, I I don't know how big of a deal that would even be to Aston Martin. I mean, I I don't know the exact numbers. I think it's still several million, but I don't think it's I don't think it's world changing given their overall overall budgets. Um. All right. So with that, I do want to talk. I know while you don't give a shit, um, Haas a little bit. Look, far better finish than I would have anticipated from their qualifying. Magnuson up an eighth. Schumacher in 14th, I mean, despite basically qualifying 16th and 19th, Magnussen only missed Q2 by two hundredths of a second. Um, meanwhile, Schumacher, unfortunately, spun on his last lap in in qualifying. And while you already mentioned it, the big news from Haas this weekend, Giovinazzi crashing in practice and, uh, and potentially saving Schumacher's seat. But, I mean, what was your... First off, with Magnussen, I mean, Schumacher... He was approaching that whole crash site like very gingerly. Meanwhile, fucking Magnuson comes through. He's still like foot on the throttle through the crash scene. Ends up passing Ocon and Schumacher. I mean, is that not more worthy of a penalty than nearly anything else that happened during the race weekend? And it just sort of went by like unnoticed. I I didn't even know about it until you mentioned it just now. Yeah, Schumacher like dropped two places through the crash scene because both. Magnuson and um, Ocon passed him, but Schumacher, or I mean, Magnuson was just like, pulled off the throttle for a moment. It was like, fuck it. I'm getting both of these guys. And then his team ended up having to come back on the radio and tell him like, yeah, dude, you need to get back those spots. But there was no like further scrutiny of like, speeding through a, a yellow flag. So, 
Um, well, given the performance overall of Giovinazzi, of others, any change in perspective on Haas lineup next year? Do you think Schumacher's, while he didn't get points like Gene and um, and Gunther are telling him is necessary for him to keep his job, he damn near would have if he's not getting run off the track by the likes of Latifi or picking up damage through the crash scene. I I mean, I think he's going to keep his seat. I think, as I've said this before, I think he's going to keep his seat, but it's not going to be because of anything he's done. It's going to be because of the lack of better alternatives. Is kind of my my view on that. So, Yep, I would agree. Um, all right. Anything you want to hit on on uh, AlphaTauri other than Gasly being targeted by the FIA now at this point? One time he's going too fast through the safety car zone. Now he's going too slow. You think he's just getting called out for being vocal against the uh, against the stewards? I'm just ready to. I'm ready for Gasly to just get out of this seat. He seems frustrated. He's getting sloppy. I don't care about him. He doesn't care about me. I, I'm just. I'm ready to. I'm ready to see Nick DeVries here. When he bitched out his team in qualifying because of a whole brake setup issue and just went off on him. So is this basically like the what a quintessentially disgruntled employee looks like? He's he's joined the toxic table, you know. Hmm. He's he's doing the exact opposite of what Seb Vettel is doing on his way out, which tells you all you need to know about Pierre Gasly. So, yeah, fuck him. I'm done. Well, and and positive note for Snow to getting in the points, breaking a bit of a dry spell. So, good for him. The only thing I can hope is that he carries this toxicity into Alpine and destroys the team from the inside, as previously stated. <laughs> That's your that's your pinnacle hope for next season. Um, lastly, to just touch on Williams, because I do think there's a couple of stories that deserve some some airtime here. First and foremost, Albon qualified 11th place, missed Q3 by just five hundredths of a second, ultimately started eighth in the points while he locked up in turn one. I mean, great showing from him, again, demonstrating the gap between him and Latifi. Meanwhile, Latifi spinning out, quote unquote, due to the wind. I mean, he's literally at this point only battling the wind. He's basically like the Don Quixote of Formula One at this point, only fighting invisible <laughs> opponents. I mean, the man had to pit on lap four for new mediums. I mean, can't come soon enough. I yeah, it's like everybody is over here fighting a real war, and Latifi's down here with foam swords, LARPing with his friends in a field. It's like, dude. We are not the same. Yeah, uh, it's point well made. All right, well, let's bring it home on uh, on the Austin GP. Who did you have on your personal podium this weekend? Uh, I'm going to say the town of Austin uh, in general. Got America. Good. America just showed out, uh, is proving its place uh, and earning more spots on the F1 calendar as it should. So I was just proud. Uh, and it also served my spite against Italy and my experience there even more, which felt good. Um, yeah, then I would say, obviously, Hamilton, um, you know, for very obvious reasons. And, um, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it there. I got a two-man podium. How about you? I had to give it to uh, Juan Vettel. Awesome weekend. Alonzo, good up until the he got strolled. And then the F1 live broadcast. I mean, no unnecessary conspiracy theories. They were engaging the IndyCar talent. They've also done a bunch of stuff with their broadcast. First, they're showing split screen battles. So they'll show like the on-track battle, like whatever the main broadcast is. And then they'll have like a secondary window of like another, not just like the little one 
next to the lap times, but they'll basically do split screen. So you're watching two parts of the race at once. And then the other thing they've done more in practice as well is they're actually starting to overlay two cars going through like the same corner or complex of corners to show where different cars are losing or gaining time relative to the competitor. So like through turn one, they showed like Verstappen versus Leclerc, and then they showed Hamilton versus Verstappen. And so you're just getting like a better sense of how effectively and cars are going through corners, entering, exiting, et cetera. So they're really uh, stepping the game up. All right. How about DNF? Uh, I'm actually going to have to throw, I wasn't quite as harsh on him earlier, but I'm actually going to have to throw in George Russell for having his first Valtteri Bottas moment as a Mercedes driver, hmm. uh, blowing into turn one completely out of control. <laughs> um, he didn't knock over quite as many bowling pins, but he, he, he tried. So he's, he's, uh, certainly filling that role of number two driver perfectly at this point. Uh, well, on my side, Obviously, Stroll threw away a great opportunity for points. Um, but more importantly, DNF of the week had to be Tim Cook and his wrist strength. Uh, man needs to get some forearms. All right, let's move ahead to uh, to Mexico. We got a 2.6-mile track, 71 laps, about a minute and 22-second lap time, so a little bit shorter. Um, potentially three DRS zones if they do the same as last season, really the home straight being the, the longest of the three. Um, 17 corners, you have this interesting sort of triple chicane right off the bat, followed by another chicane and a hairpin. Then you have this sort of middle section with some medium speed, five corner complex, kind of like Austin, and then a hard medium or hard right-hand corner into the stadium section before heading back onto the home straight. Likely a two-stop strategy. However, looking back at 2019, the one-stop really prevailed um, with Hamilton and Vettel taking first and second in the race. Uh, 2021, you saw a Mercedes front row lockout with Red Bull on the second roll, but on the race start, Verstappen took the lead, taking the outside into turn one. Botas got spun out by Ricardo in turn one. How the tables have turned, the fact that Ricardo was even in a position to take out the pole sitter on lap one. Um, Put Perez into third. Ultimately, this was the race where Verstappen finished a mile ahead and Perez was hunting down Hamilton for second place, but unable to make the pass. And then you had Gasly all the way up in fourth, followed by um, Ferrari. And no race here in 2020 uh, due to due to COVID. So with all that being said, what's your predictions for the Mexico Grand Prix in 2022? Easy to you know, put your name on the Perez podium piece just because it's, this isn't just a home Grand Prix. This is like a deeply impassioned fan base home Grand Prix. I mean, he's the Lord of De- what Lord of defense or the minister of defense in Mexico is what they call him. So, uh, he's like a, he's like a God. Um, uh, I mean, I God, I saw a video of him like at a bad bunny concert where he was like in the audience randomly. And then they brought him up on stage and it was like, you know, women were weeping and like, I mean, it was like, what in the hell? Like (laughs) he is worshiped down there. So, uh, you know, when that's the situation, you always want to see a guy like that get on the podium. So I think I'm going to go for a strong weekend for Red Bull. Um, God, but you know what? Then also your earlier points about like, Ferrari's going to be boom or bust. They're probably either going to have the race pace here or they're going to completely combust. It's like part of me also thinks like 
maybe Ferrari might pull a one-two out of the hat, you know, um, and spoil the party. That'd be a little bit poetic. Uh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to say Ferrari one-two signs Leclerc, followed by Perez, Verstappen DNF. Let's get spicy. Whoa, Verstappen DNF. Nice. I was going to say, you, you pivoted there at the end. I was going to say, I think this is going to be a good weekend for uh, Ferrari. You have a lot of slow speed corners. Um, I think that's going to suit them. I think Mercedes, unfortunately, is going to struggle more at this track than they will at Brazil or uh, Abu Dhabi. So I think this is not going to be the race where Hamilton or Mercedes gets a win. So, yeah, I like your I like your push. I think, um, yeah, look, I'm going to have a – I'm going to say signs for stopping Perez. But Ferrari's going to take it. Perez is going to be strong. There's no way Max has given up some some spot to, to Perez. I could get down with a little Carlos redemption story. He needs yeah. one. It's, uh, yeah. it's been tough times for Carlos. All right, my friend. Well, the Mexico GP, just a few days away. Looking forward to it. Maybe we'll get there. I, honestly, of all the – my brother was texting me earlier about Las Vegas tickets because apparently like Amex Platinum has this like early ticket buy deal or you can just fork up all – like it's like 2000 bucks for a average seat. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, like, I'm all about, obviously, races in America, but, like, of all the GPs I haven't been to and ones that are in proximity, like Mexico, you've talked about going. That is up there, man, on the list. I think it'd be a great time. Well, that's why I'm wearing the the Montreal sweatshirt in spirit of the race that I was supposed to go to uh, before life intervened. But, dude, I, I think I am I am boycotting Vegas for a number of reasons. I would still be up for. I think the Austin Mexico one two is the is the way to go, especially with like the Day of the Dead celebrations. Like I think the week preceding the Mexico GP, it's just got to be like a, a badass week to to be there and a good time. So yeah, hey man, I'd, definitely I, Mexico I'd, over Vegas. I'd be bitter if a city stole my innocence too. So I can't fault you there. <laughs> you said you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> All right, sorry. I know we were trying to cut out, and I threw us a wrench. So no, always a pleasure, Jeep. You're usually the one cutting us short, so I'm I'm glad to see you uh, indulge. I mean, well, it's, two hours it's later, ten, so. it's it's ten thirty my time. I've got to edit and then wake up tomorrow morning to take my corporate lashing. So, uh, yeah, you know, I've got I've <laughs> I got some demons I'm fighting off right now. <laughs> if I'm totally honest. Mean, meanwhile, I'm living the unemployed life. So, uh, yeah, man, if I didn't have such such expensive hobbies, this would be the way to go. How many karting trips have you had since you got to Denver? Um, I've only and are you two. a local legend yet? Uh, I've, I'm building a brand. It's, it's starting. <laughs> a but, good brand uh, or a brand like I punch out like, you know, middle-aged fathers who look at me wrong on the starting line or, or I'm good. <laughs> Remains to be seen, but the buzz, is, uh, the buzz is growing. Let's just say that. Yeah, they're like, yeah, this douchebag rolls up in a rolls up in a WRX in the parking lot, revving his engine, gets out in a full race suit. Yeah, doesn't even gotta... lift his doesn't even lift his visor the whole time he's there. He's like the Stig. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start with a little donuts in the parking lot. Yeah, tell him, show him you mean business. God, I am glad that I'm not there, and also incredibly jealous at the same time. So, yeah, soon enough, my friend. Well, until yeah. next week, have a good one. Peace. See you, bud. Bye.